Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hello there. We have Ian Murray with us today. He directs the Center for Economic Freedom at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. He's vice president there for strategy and a senior fellow. He's the author of The Socialist Temptation, uh, a book which just came out, which I read this week with great... uh, with great entertainment and edification as well. Ian, thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be with you today, Mark. All right. You know, actually, first, let me ask, uh, tell us what the Center for Economic Freedom does very quickly, just for our readers to know. Well, at, uh, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, we focus on the ill effects of regulation and the burden that places on the economy and the consumer, and so we uh, we, we fight to uh, to reduce regulation in uh, areas like uh, f- uh, financial regulation, labor and employment regulation, and uh, what uh, what these days they call the syndustry, where uh, where the the, uh, um, the public health bodies are, are trying to uh, get us to stop doing things uh, for our own good, which. Uh, is uh, a lot of what uh, my book, The Socialist Temptation, is about as well. Indeed, and uh, I, I guess uh, work is work for you guys is getting harder and harder, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, indeed. Uh, despite the fact that uh, that, that, that uh, uh, the, the current president has uh, done as much as he can to put the brakes on regulation, uh, the, the machinery that's in place is almost designed uh, to, to, to keep churning out um, more regulations. So uh, in, in many ways, it's, it's a case of, of uh, trying to, trying to uh, empty uh, a flooding, uh, empty a flooding street with one bucket. Right, right. Okay, well, this is, as you said, the motivation, one of the motivations for writing The Socialist Temptation. Uh, let's get to question number one, an obvious question. Uh, what exactly is the socialist temptation? Why the word temptation? It's not the socialist philosophy. It's not the socialist vision. It's not even the socialist dream. You call it uh, temptation. Why, why that selection? Well, I, I, I called it that because um, the, the, uh, it, 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 uh, when I was researching the book, I, I realized that, uh, that socialism, as it's currently being, uh, being sold to Americans, uh, is talking in the language of values. It's talking at a very emotional level. And those of us who support uh, the free market, uh, free enterprise, uh, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, we talk, tend to talk uh, in the language of economic
economics and history and uh, aggregate GDP and things like that. Uh, but socialism's talking at a very different level. It's talking at, at an, an emotional level. Uh, it's saying things aren't right in America. You know this. We know this. We have uh, we, we have uh, we have the answers, and really they're easy and intuitive answers. So uh, think about socialism, and 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 you'll come round to it. So that's why I think it's uh, it, it's been so successful at the moment. India, I mean, it sounds so simple and so obvious. Uh, what what socialism promises? Who could argue with that? Well, indeed, I mean, th those of us who uh, who, who support uh, the uh, the free market uh, need to start arguing. Uh, at that level of values, uh, rather than uh, doing the uh, uh, what, what we have been doing in talking about uh, economic reality and things like that, uh, if um, um, if we're not talking at that values level, and it's that values level that underpins uh, how Americans think about politics, then we're always going to be left behind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, you, you're saying in a way this is a rhetorical. Uh, drawback of perhaps the the market or the the economic outlook to speak in more rational terms or more empirical terms uh, about things that are that are that are going on and the socialists have learned to to hit you know on, on the human level in some way but you begin with a, a page of uh, a tongue-in-cheek I think page of trigger warnings you call them that assert that socialism is downright dangerous, and you use the word dangerous, it's dangerous for the working class, for women, for minorities, you know, the, the victims whom socialism is supposed to protect and improve. How can something so destructive have been, I, well, I guess this is the, the big topic of your book, to explain how has socialism come back? when we all we have to do is look at the historical record of socialism to see it didn't work well indeed i mean and, and that's that that's why it's a, it's a temptation because uh we we know from our empirical analysis that there are contradictions within socialism that lead to it undermining those values that uh, that, that i talked about earlier but i think what one of the things that we have to have to have to, uh, have to tackle is that uh, at the moment socialism appears to have a get out of jail free card. Uh, whenever you talk to uh, uh, to uh, some uh, some in, uh, some instance of socialism in the past uh, and the terrible things that resulted from it, uh, socialists will turn around and say, "Well, that wasn't real socialism in the first place." And it, it's interesting how this happens. Um, my friend Christian Nemitz at the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs in London was actually the first to, to draw my attention to this. There's an identifiable cycle of what goes on. Uh, a new socialist state is, is set up. The new institutions of socialism are put in place. And every commentator, uh, certainly every pro-socialism commentator, and a lot of neutral ones as well, say, this is it. This is this is socialism in action. At long last, those uh, ideals and principles of socialism are being realised, and uh, it's, and they say you know, this is a socialist state. This is real socialism. Then, after a few years, the internal contradictions of socialism that I talk about in the Social Temptation, they start to bite, and uh, the, the wheels start to come off. Uh, the, 
uh, the economy may not be doing so well, or a class that did well under the old regime realizes it's not doing as well under the, the new regime and starts to starts to push back, uh, and so on. Uh, at this point, uh, they, uh, the commentators say, well, it can't be the fault of socialism because socialism is perfect. So this must be the, uh, the fault of saboteurs or wreckers, you know, which that's a sort of language that led to the Cultural Revolution in China. Or it must be the fault of foreign agents, uh, economic sanctions, or the CIA. That's where we are with Venezuela at the moment, I think. Uh, most socialists uh, claim that, that Venezuela would be doing fine were it not for the CIA. And then finally, when everything has got a heck in a handbasket, when the economy has collapsed, then in the worst cases, be many thousands dead, and the, the socialist system itself collapses, then, they, then the same commentators who are saying, yes, this is real socialism, they turn around and say, well, that wasn't real socialism. It can't have been real socialism because it didn't work. And as a result of this, socialism has this sort of built-in get-out-of-jail-free card. The emergence of a dictator, for instance, which uh, very often happens with socialism. So you might think that it is... Uh, uh, that, that it, uh, and due to an inherent problem with socialism, that is seen as uh, as uh, prima facie evidence that it was never real socialism in the first place. So, as I say, this this ends up being a get out of jail free card for socialists, and they're able to say next time we'll we'll get it right. You begin with the main evidence for the continuing socialist temptation. You quote a poll which is kind of stunning. It was a poll from the Kennedy School at Harvard uh, Institute of Politics. It's a youth poll, 18 to 29-year-olds, on, on certain uh, attitudes toward, toward control. Uh, let's just put it that way. And here, here are some of the things that you come up with. 67% of the respondents uh, supported single-payer health care, you know, Medicare for all. 53% supported, quote, requiring U.S. corporations with more than $1 billion in revenue to allow their workers to elect 40% of the membership of their board of directors. 62% uh, favored, quote, eliminating tuition and fees at public four-year colleges and universities for students from families that make up to $125,000 uh, per, per year. 47% uh, were in support of building a militant and powerful labor movement in the United States rooted in the multiracial uh, working class. Uh, we could, 63% uh, were even in favor of, quote, a federal jobs guarantee that would provide funding so that every American would be guaranteed a job paying at least $15 an hour with family leave and, and health benefits. Now, those are, those are pretty big numbers. Uh, for the young, when you looked at those numbers, did you did you wonder, okay, how deep is this thought through, or is it just I want security and this is the way, this is the best way for me for me to get it? How how you know how 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 deep down do these commitments run? Well, that, that, that is a very good question. Because uh, one of the things that uh, that, that, uh, that today's so-called democratic socialists uh, say is that they're not looking for anything particularly radical. All they're doing is looking for uh, the same sort of thing that exists in, uh, in, in, in other countries. 
and uh, and countries that, that are doing quite well today, like Sweden and so on. But when you look at the the, the policies such as you just uh, you just outlined, some of them, yes, a, few, a couple of those other countries do have. Some of those policies, however, uh, like the federal jobs guarantee and so on, go way beyond anything that uh, that, that any other uh, functioning country has. They're very deep and radical policies, and they're much more radical than the, the left in America has proposed, at least since uh, since the New Deal. So, so, so there seems to be a sort of disconnect here. I, I, for instance, you know, single payer healthcare, for instance, that most. Uh, Western European countries do not have fully socialized medicine. They have a sort of hybrid public and private system. It's only the UK, Canada, Australia, and a couple of others that have a fully socialized medicine. And when you, uh, when you look at uh, the, the health outcomes of those countries, they're always uh, right at the bottom of the uh, health outcomes of any, uh, of, of any country in the developing world. Yeah, so, 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 as I say, there's a disconnect here between what they say they want, which is moderate that they claim, and what the what the policies that they say they want, which are very, very radical indeed. So, trying to define what socialism means today is uh, is an exercise in trying to uh, shoot the ball between shifting goal goalposts every time you, you talk to a socialist. But when it comes to the actual policies. Which is the be-all and end-all of what of, 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 of what socialism is. Those policies are extremely radical. You, you actually say at one point that trying to define socialism is like trying to nail Jello to the wall, and and so I think it is wise in, in that case to say, no. Let's look at the actual practices, the actual policies. To say that's not real socialism seems to me to put you know socialism up in the clouds. Uh, somewhere, and yeah, that, that's where it is up in the clouds. And let's so let's examine outcomes. Let's see what has happened. Now, you do that a little bit. You go back in in time in socialism in U.S. history. Are there a couple of moments that you would single out in American history that would be high points of the socialist inclination and or low points of socialism in America? Well, indeed, I, I, I think that, uh, that, that there have been two waves of, you know, as I term it, socialism light that, uh, that, that, that have uh, engulfed America. The first was the progressive era, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. And that was an era that, that established that government has a role in virtually everything we do. It, it was when you know, the, 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 the first uh, of, of the alphabet soup of agencies that now, uh, now slot around in D.C. Uh, were, were founded. It, it was an age when uh, very similar rhetoric to today, actually. The, the, the rhetoric was about how the upper 10, by which they meant the upper 10,000, 10,000 richest people in, uh, in, in America, uh, were somehow distorting the system. It's very similar rhetoric to the uh, to the rhetoric about the one percent that we hear today. So, so there was this uh, this feeling that government had to try and control more and more of uh, American economic activity, and that set the scene. For, uh, for for things that happened later, the second thing that happened was uh, was the the, the, the New Deal, a, a wave of uh, of even more agencies and even more interference, and uh, you know you have the the National Recover Recovery Administration essentially having agents who were able to batter down your door and make sure that you were following 
uh, the rules of the of the National Recovery Administration. It was deeply reminiscent of some of the things that were happening in Europe in the 1930s uh, at, the, at the same time. Extremely, extremely worrying. That was pushed back by the Supreme Court. But uh, after Roosevelt warning that he would pack the court, you know, the, the court acquiesced and, and let, uh, let let a, a milder version of, of of the New Deal survive. The is that with the combination of the Progressive Era and the New Deal Era, uh, we, we began to see the putting in place of a sort of parallel constitution, a parallel constitution made up of uh, what are terms uh, uh, by even by the defenders, super statutes. You know, laws that uh, that the courts almost give constitutional status to, and uh, and and continuous deference to, and with, uh, laws which are going to be incredibly hard to repeal. You know, many of them have been in place for a uh, hundred years or more. Uh, so th- this sort of parallel constitution began to undermine un- undermine the foundations of the uh, actual written constitution. And has led to the situation now, where I think the apparatus is in place, thanks to these, uh, thanks to this parallel constitution, for uh, socialism actually to take root in America. Do, do you think that socialism would be lingering this way if it weren't maintained on the college campuses by the left-oriented professors? There appears to be a, a very strong correlation. Correlation does not imply causation, but uh, there does appear to be a very strong correlation between courses that are studied at university and uh, and the sympathy uh, to socialism. My friend Phil Magnus, uh, who's an economic historian, has actually researched all the syllabuses he can find uh, in in, uh, in American uh, colleges mm-hmm. and taken a look at what the most prescribed texts are. The second most prescribed text, and not by a very long way, uh, is uh, uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' uh, the, uh, the Communist, Communist Manifesto. Okay. okay. And that and that is being uh, prescribed not in economics class, where you might think you know, that, 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 that it would be uh, at least relevant. It's being prescribed in English classes. It's being prescribed in history classes, in sociology, in anthropology, in any of the classes with the word studies after them. And so uh, it, 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 it should come as no surprise that if, uh, if, if they were pushing the socialism down people's throats at university, that they should vomit back up socialism uh, when it comes to their political preferences later. You mentioned the ideal of equality as a big part of the temptation. Are the believers and the young believers in socialism simply unaware of the dark history of people putting egalitarian ideals into practice? Well, I, I think this is a, 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 a splendid case of both the, 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 the things that I mentioned earlier. The, the fact that socialism has this sort of get out of jail free card whereby they can say, oh, no, no, that, that, that wasn't real socialism. But also because uh, you know, socialism is, is, is speaking to values and those of us who support the free enterprise are not. I think one of the best things that, 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 that we can do to to talk about that language of values when it comes to equality is to start off basically with Animal Farm. Uh, George Orwell's great, uh, great allegory of what happened in the, uh, in, in the Soviet Union. One of the, the greatest contradictions 
of socialism that I talk about in The Socialist Temptation is that it is supposed to be all about equality. It's, all, it's supposed to be about democracy. But because of the, the very nature, if you, if you give, uh, if you suppose, try to have democratic control over everything, then the, the people cannot possibly oversee everything. So they have to delegate that to people, people that we know as bureaucrats or apparatchiks or something. And because of the amount of power that we are giving, the, the actual power of the people themselves to, to these bureaucrats and apparatchiks, they become a ruling, a new ruling class. And we know from the economic school of public choice that if you give people power because they are humans, just like the rest of us, with their own flaws and uh, fallen nature, then they are going to uh, they are going to uh, use that power in ways that perhaps we wouldn't necessarily approve of. So in the end, that that bureaucracy, that new ruling class, becomes uh, a self-dealing class and becomes, uh, in, in in the extreme cases, a, a corrupt class. And that's why that brilliant line from uh, George Orwell at the end of Animal Farm, when the pigs appear on uh, walking on their hind legs, is all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And that and that is the reality of socialist egalitarianism. It actually produces a new ruling class. Uh, now, this is why then in a socialist society when equality is highlighted above all things, free speech has to be sacrificed. That, that, that's absolutely the case. Um, it's, it's very interesting that when you look at the uh, socialists, when they talk about free speech, they, they claim to be in favor of free speech. But when you get down to it, uh, they are actually only in favor of free speech where if, that, if free speech uh, addresses what they view as an existing power imbalance. So you are able to protest against things. If, however, you are uh, you are trying to defend the current uh, the current establishment, then you are defending a power imbalance, and that is not viewed as a uh, a legitimate uh, reason for free speech. So, therefore, you have no free speech to defend uh, uh, exploitation or power imbalance or something like that. So, it, it uh, the, the Free speech is only allowed if it goes in one direction, and that's one of the things that leads to uh, the uh, existence of the sort of cancel culture that people are very concerned about today. What is speaking of the First Amendment? Uh, what is the what what tends to be the fate of religion in in a socialist system, and why? Well, th 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 this th this I think is one of the the, the fund fundamental issues with socialism. Churches, religious organizations, uh, uh, mutual benefit societies and the like, they all provide public or social goods from a private source. But to, to a socialist, public and, uh, and social goods, the, the, the very fountain origin of those is supposed to be the socialist state itself. It's supposed to be the people, the democratic uh, socialism. So therefore, the, the religious groups are a, a direct competitor to the state. And so that has to be dealt with in one way or another. Either the, uh, the groups are forbidden from, uh, from uh, providing these social goods, and if they, they try to, then they get persecuted, or as happened in, in some countries, they try to co-opt the church and make it part of the state itself. 
either way, there is a, uh, uh, very much an establishment, <laughs> an establishment issue there, a First Amendment issue when it comes to uh, how America would deal with it. Right, right. And, and following the section where you do talk about uh, religion in, in a socialist system, you actually say that socialism ends up discouraging virtuous behavior. Uh, can, can you give us a couple of examples of that? What, what, one of the, uh, the central principles of, 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 of most faiths is that, uh, is that charity is important. It's, it's an act of love. It, uh, it is something that, that you demonstrate, you as an individual or a family, towards uh, your fellow man. As I say, in, this, in the socialist state, the, uh, the, uh, it's, it's the state which is the fountain origin of, of all of that. So therefore, uh, you cannot be charitable in a socialist state. It, 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 it ends up being forbidden because it conflicts with the role, uh, the role of the state. In, uh, in fact, there is a sort of subversion of the charitable instinct, uh, the, uh, the, the charitable approach that happens, which is the, the socialist state turns around and says, you are not moral if you try to give your, uh, your give of your resources directly to somebody else. You are only moral if you give to the state so that they can then redistribute it because the state knows better than you do. So it, it, in the end, the, the, the state actually uh, subverts the charitable instinct and says that you are not moral unless you agree with this, uh, with, with this high level of taxation and the, uh, the, the methods uh, by which uh, the, 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 your money is redistributed. Okay, so Ian, this brings up something of a paradox. Socialism has reinforced, you know, the state is the source, the power, the, 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 the ground for everything. And yet socialism doesn't like nationalism, correct? It, it, it leans toward internationalism. Well, this is another one of socialism's contradictions. Socialism talks about the international brotherhood of man and wants to use transnational, I think transnational is a better term than international, transnational institutions to impose its views on everyone. However, at the same time, so the, the, the socialist states themselves always tend towards uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the nationalist. They hate emigration, for instance. Uh, you know, in the Communist Manifesto, it says that uh, the, the, all emigres should have their, uh, their, their, their property confiscated. But that wasn't enough when it came to the actual socialists, the real socialist states that we talked about earlier. They realized that if somebody was emigrating, they, they had human capital as well. You know, they had resources in their minds and in their hands, which the state had a claim on. So in the, in the end, the, uh, the, the, these uh, internationalist states became very nationalist and tried to stop people leaving to the extent that there is all those, that heartbreaking footage of, uh, of people trying to flee East Berlin to get into West Berlin and being shot in inches from the border. You've got a, another term that I haven't, I haven't seen this one before. I don't know if you coined it or not, but the label is watermelon environmentalism. What, what is that? Uh, yes, uh, that, 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 that's a phrase that was uh, that, 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 that's been around in, in, in those of us who, uh, who who believe in the uh, the free market and environmentalism. We've used that term for for a while. Uh, 
James Delingpole, a British author, uh, actually had a book called Watermelons. The, the idea is that, uh, that, that environmentalists are green on the outside, but are actually red, socialist red, on the inside, hence the watermelon. And the, 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 this is a, a, a distressing phenomenon for those of us who are free market environmentalists, because uh, we, we look at uh, how socialist states have actually treated the environment, and they have been uh, uniformly uh, environmental offenders out there. I, I, I wrote a book back in 2008 called The Really Inconvenient Truths. Uh, looked at uh, environmental catastrophes that, that liberals and socialists don't talk about because they help cause them. The greatest environmental catastrophe that we have seen is uh, the drying up of the Aral Sea in, in, in the center of what used to be the Soviet Union which was all because the, uh, the, the, the socialist government decided that it wanted to, 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 to plan a cotton industry in Central Asia and so diverted all the water sources of the Aral Sea into helping to uh, create this, uh, the, the, this new white gold resource, as they called it, uh, the, the, this, this cotton resource in Central Asia. Central Asia. Uh, the, the, the environmental catastrophe that resulted from that, the destruction of this huge uh, inland water uh, water resource, uh, is it, just unparalleled elsewhere, and capitalism had nothing to do with it. You know, you mentioned briefly, and this is a little side note I was going to ask you about, you mentioned briefly Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old who ended up speaking at the United Nations and haranguing these institutional international leaders. What a bizarre episode that was. How, how did the, the environmentalist situation end up with, again, a, a, a teenager becoming a, a world image and authority figure who was there to rebuke the, uh, all the 50-year-old all diplomats uh, around the world? How did that happen? I mean, what, what was the, I don't know, what was the psychopolitical setup that would lead to that episode? Again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, right at the beginning, socialism has these easy answers to things, things that seem intuitive. And, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, if you have easy answers, who better to, uh, to present them? That, uh, than, than, than a child who is, uh, you know, by, by, by her very nature, uh, idealistic, puts aside all, all other thoughts of, uh, uh, of, of, of uh, self-interest uh, and is, is there to speak the truth to the truth to power. Of course, the problem with the, the sort of solutions that Greater Thunberg and others uh, uh, present is that they are all socialist solutions that we know won't work. So, in in the end, I I I, uh, uh, I, I, I do, do another riff on on George Orwell, and I say, you know, if you want a vision of the future, imagine being lectured by Greater Thunberg forever. <laughs> there you are. Okay. Uh, last question, Ian. Uh, what is woke? capitalism, which you talk about near the end. What is woke capitalism? And is, it, 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 is this strategy of woke capitalism, is this going to work? Well, this is a very interesting phenomenon because uh, what, what, what we have seen is that uh, 
private industry has woken up to the fact that uh, it, its consumers aren't just consumers, they're also citizens. And they have political uh, aspirations as well as uh, as well as cons- uh, consumer aspirations. So, if you have as your uh, your main consumer base a, a base of people who are very politically active, it makes absolute sense for the for for, for the uh, the company to say, yes, we share your values. We want to see. Uh, uh, we want to see uh, the same things that, uh, that you want to see happen politically, and so they become politically active. They donate huge amounts of money to uh, p- political causes, and this helps reinforce their their link with uh, with their consumer. The the trouble is, the political activists have seen the, the, ha- how this cycle works, and are now using it in reverse to try to say to uh, to, 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 to corporations, you know, unless. You do uh, you you do something, uh, then, uh, th- th- then then we are going to use political power to uh, to destroy you. So uh, so now we're seeing uh, corporations that don't necessarily want to be woke are becoming are being forced to be woke. I think that's the sort of thing that's happening with uh, the National Football League at the moment. So it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how the actual consumer base. Of, uh, of of uh, corporations like the National Football League uh, react to, uh, uh, you know, to, to to this sort of woke nature being uh, being forced on them. Uh, the, the, there's uh, the, there's quite a bit of evidence that uh, that that when this happens, uh, as they say, go woke, go broke, uh, that you lose your that you lose your consumer base. And uh, th- th- this causes, uh, you know, significant uh, commercial problems uh, for, for the private industry. It'll be really interesting to see what happens when the NFL comes back. It will. Uh, the book is The Socialist Temptation. Ian Murray, thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.